This message was recorded live at Life Church Lancashire, a contemporary Christian church in the north of England. Learn more at lifelanks.org. Good morning. Good morning. How's everyone doing today? Good. Happy Father's Day. We're just uh, collecting our offerings, so thanks everyone for that. And um, yeah, let me be the at least the third person to say Happy Father's Day to all the dads and granddads here. Any great granddads here? I see one. I see two, three, four, five, six. That's pretty good. Pretty good. Great granddads. You've got to say thank you to your dad. You literally wouldn't be here without him. It's um, it's uh, being a dad. This is my fourth Father's Day, and I just want to say to anyone who's not a dad, being a dad is amazing. If you don't like sleeping. It's absolutely fantastic. And um, the cool thing about being a dad is your kids, your kids are always learning new things. Uh, this week, my youngest, he, he learned the grimace emoji. You know the one there? That one? He can do that on cue now. It's amazing. We, as a civilization, we're now uh, regressing where we've gone from facial, uh, you know, cues and gestures to the written word, now we're abandoning that and just going back to emojis. It's, uh, so I'm glad he's, he's, he's developing in that. And uh, my, my three-year-old is funny. He's hilarious. Um, the other day, he um, went up to his mother when our youngest was nursing, and he says to his, his mom, is that milk in you? And she says, yes. And he says, want me to try some? And she said, no, no, no. And he says, I can be a baby. <laughs> He's had enough. The, the thing, when, when you become a dad, you, you, you find yourself um, saying things that your parents used to say to you. Anybody notice that? Like, the, yesterday I, I said to Ezra, would you like a drink? <laughs> My dad says that all the time. Like, pretty much every time I go around to his house, he'll, he'll say that. Classic. But there's something, there's something my mum used to say all the time as well. There's was, there was many things she used to say. She had a, a unique way with words, let's put it that. She, she had more catchphrases than, you know, a 1980s comedian. She was... She was that kind of, uh, of character. But uh, one thing she always used to say to me uh, re- repeatedly, which kind of lost all meaning, it was repeated so often, was she used to look at me in the eye. Sometimes the finger would come out and she'd say, think on. You, you just think on. She never told me to think on what. That was never clear. It was just think on. I never knew really what to do with that at the time, but that is something I found myself saying as well. But that's something that we're going to talk about today. Think on, but think on what? What we think on is so important, and you know this because of neuroplasticity, right? Of course. That's why what we think on is so important. See you later. No, but what, what we know is that the brain changes. The brain changes. 
changes. The brain grows and shrinks and changes in different ways, in different parts of the brain. And, and, and this wisdom that my mum knew, and this wisdom, as we'll see today, um, has been around for thousands of years, that what we think on is important, has been borne out in our generation by brain scanners. That, we're, that parts of our brain actually grow or shrink depending on the job that we do, depending on the learning that we have, depending on our experiences. When you focus on one particular thing, the neurons in your brain start to fire and they connect and they make stronger connections. And the things that you ignore, they begin to dwindle and they begin to die away. Your brain is changing and growing anyway. So uh, what I would encourage you to do is be deliberate about the way that it grows. To, because your whole life, your whole experience will be determined by how you think. It will be determined by how you experience it, how, how you perceive it, how you, how you enjoy it. You know, it's amazing that uh, my wife's from the States and... Uh, uh, Often when we meet people in Lancashire for the first time, it might be a new acquaintance or it might just be somebody in a cafe, they'll look at her, they'll hear her accent and say, oh, why do you want to come over here? And usually she'll take them on and say, I love it over here. It's beautiful. Why wouldn't you want to be here? You're with a, in striking distance of several major cities. That's unheard of for most people in America. We're down the road from an international airport. We live in one of the most uh, picturesque um, areas of the whole country. And we can travel closely to so many of them. There's history. There's culture. It's rich in art and music and life. And the people are friendly and down to earth. And you'd think that'd be expensive, but it turns out it's one of the cheapest places in the countries to live. Why don't you want to live here? At this point, they say, so do you want milk with your coffee or not? But Two people living in the same town, but they got a different perspective. Why? Because one of them's thinking on all the problems and the challenges and the difficulties, and another one is thinking on something else. So they perceive it. It's not just um, a positive choice in that moment, but they're actually seeing the whole thing differently because they've repeatedly thought differently and actually change your brain. And your brain right now, until you die, will change and grow and wither and develop so it's up to you to be deliberate about what you do with it. Think on. We're in a series right now in Philippians chapter 4 called The God of Peace Will Be With You. We're doing four weeks in this chapter. This is a, a letter that was important in the early church that was written to a particular community in a city called Philippi and distributed around other churches. And we're in Philippians 4, but I just want to, uh, go back into Philippians chapter 3 and see how these ideas begin to be developed. In verses 19 and 20, the writer talks about these people, these enemies of the cross, and he says that their mind is set, they're thinking on, their mind is set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven. Now just think about that for a moment. These Philippians, they prided themselves on being Roman citizens. Although they lived in a frontier city quite far geographically from Rome, Philippi was given full status as a Roman city. It had the same rights, privileges and status as the cities in Italy itself. 
And they prided themselves on, on, on the status and the rights and privileges that they were given as citizens of this city and what that meant for this empire that seemed to dominate their entire world as it had spread across the Mediterranean. And that meant coming with a certain culture, a certain way of living, a certain way of doing things. And to these people comes a challenge to think and act differently in the middle of that. Yes, you may be a Roman citizen, but you have to understand that your first allegiance is not to Rome, it's to Christ. Our citizenship is in heaven. That's your first allegiance. So our mind is not set on the earthly things, but but we realize that because our allegiance is to Christ, it, it comes from from the God realm, the heavenly realm. We can actually think differently. We can actually live and act out of a different culture. We can actually be ambassadors who carry that culture to the culture that we find ourselves in. You know, we live in a culture just like Rome that is, is very powerful, that is very pervasive, that's full of images and symbols and signs that tell us to live and act and think in a certain way. But guess what? It's not compulsory. You don't have to. You can actually step outside of that and think and act differently in the middle of it. And it starts with this thinking on, thinking on. But think on what? Well, in the next chapter, we have this brilliant, lucid description of the kind of things that we can think on to actually change and rewire our brain in this positive way. And in verse 8 of Philippians chapter 4, Paul says, Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. These are the God thoughts. This is a divine concept. These are things that come from the heavenly realm, to use Paul's language. This is a better way of thinking. This is the kind of things that we can think on, that we can focus on, that we can be deliberate about with our meditation, that will actually allow us to be a different kind of presence, to be different kind of citizens, even in the midst of this city. And I love this kind of thinking. You see, when you think in this kind of way, your thoughts become, instead of what most people's first thought is, how does this affect me? Your thoughts start to become what's best for everybody. You start to have that concern for others. It's not just about me, it's about you. It's not just about us, it's about them too. It's a different way of thinking. It's a noble way of thinking. This way of thinking means that our integrity has to go all the way through. So thinking just of, of what's easy or expedient will not be enough. But we have to do what is right. This kind of thinking is inspiring. It, it, it focuses on, on things that lift us, that, that pushes to the greater, that, that inspires us to do great work and great deeds. This kind of thinking has an aesthetic quality. What does that mean? It means it's beautiful. 
It's sublime. Look at this. It's excellent. It's praiseworthy. This kind of thinking is patterns of thought which celebrate God's goodness throughout creation. So, so, so often I, I've seen, you know, in religious circles that people will focus on something, they will gravitate to something, they will honour something, they will praise something if it, if it has their badge on it, if it has their name on it. So Christians like Christian music and Christian conferences and Christian clothes and Christian dentists. And, I, I don't know. Yeah. Oh, I should use my dentist. He's a Christian. I don't care. Where did he go to dentistry school? Do you know what I mean? Dan, who was up here before, was a Christian, but I'm not. I'm not giving him a drill and letting him loose on my mouth. So, but you know, it's not just Christians who do this. You know, all kind of religions do it. All kind of cultural groups. You know, any kind of homogenous group does this kind of thing. But I want to encourage you: whatever is excellent, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, like fashion and art, and design, and music, and nature, and sport. Just bring that into your life. Bring good things into your life. Bring focus into your life, and enjoy, and think, and focus on that, because it will begin to, to, to draw you to more excellent and more praiseworthy things. So how are you going to take steps in a world that is so full of so much negativity and gossip and complaint? How are you going to take steps to fill your mind instead with all the good things that God has given us to be legitimately pleased with? You know, when you find something good, it's so easy to go, oh, that's a nice break from all this rubbish. But actually, how about instead, if we really captured that? When you find something good, focus on it. Meditate on it. Enjoy it. Stay in that moment. Focus on it. Stay there for 20 seconds. Drink it in. Appreciate it. Remember it. And your neurons will start to fire. Your brain will actually start to change if we think on. Paul goes on in verse 9 and he says, Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice and the God of peace will be with you. So in our Philippian context, as I was saying, putting it into practice, living out their faith meant going against Greek and Roman customs. It meant they would have to do things that meant they were stepping outside of what was expected, of what was done. And it would come at a cost. And Paul gives them, he posits to them this question. Are we going to be concerned with lifestyle or a style of life? Lifestyle or a style of life? Now let me explain what that means. You see, we live in a culture where this fictitious lifestyle is presented to us by the media. But the thing about this incredible aspirational lifestyle that's portrayed is now, today, we're all told we can have it. 
we're all told we should be enjoying it. And what that does is that fuels inadequacy within us. I don't have so many friends. I don't have clothes like that. I don't look like that. My partner doesn't look like that. I don't get to go there on holiday. I've only got one yacht. This guy's got two. I'm sure you feel the same. So we're, we're, we're given this fictitious lifestyle. And what our culture does is it teaches us to copy. It teaches us to aspire to a, a lifestyle, a, a consumer lifestyle. These, these additions the, and, and the, the, our way of living becomes about these kind of things. The car that we drive, the image that we have, the places that we go, the way our carefully curated social media profile looks. And we're taught to aspire to this certain lifestyle. And there's these people who teach us what to do. They're called influencers. Influencers. Now, I'm going to sound like a right old man right now. But I remember when influencers were academics and artists, musicians, the philosophers, the poets. These were the people who influenced culture, the political theorists. Nowadays, we have good-looking people in five-star hotels holding up products that they are paid by the brand to hold up. This is an influencer. Is anybody with me? This is, we now call these people influencers. So, so this is what is influencing uh, culture. And we have people, we all do it, who follow these people who we follow them on social media we follow their movements we read about them in magazines we see them on the tv and we know it's fake we're all aware of it and we still buy into it we know that it's curated we know they don't look like that all the time we know that they're paid to do what they're doing to promote what they're doing and we still buy into it because we are so wrapped up in this whole culture that says a better lifestyle is the most important thing to aspire to. And we orient our life and our decisions and the way we do family and the way we do career and the way we do everything around aspiring to a slightly better lifestyle. So let me encourage you. Instead of emulating somebody else's lifestyle, aspire to a style of life worth emulating. You see, a style of life isn't a bunch of accoutrements, outside, exterior signs that tell people who we are and what our status is. A style of life is a way of living. It's a value-based purpose-based, intention-based, people-based way of being in the world. And Paul encourages his readers to a style of life, a way of living that embodies the gospel, which means this good news message about Jesus. And what about if we lived in such a way that actually the things that we did were signs and symbols that actually pointed towards good news. It actually, with the people who are in a world where there is so much bad news, 
were a sign, a beacon, a light of good news because we weren't concerned with chasing after a lifestyle, but instead living a style of life worth emulating, worth following. Now, we've heard it already this morning on Father's Day, but that is what fatherhood is principally. It's an example. It's an example. And it was impossible for the first readers that Paul had here in Philippians to think of following Christ as a lifestyle choice. You see, Paul wrote this letter from prison, probably under house arrest in Rome. And for the Philippians, following Paul, emulating as he asked them to do, would have meant losing business would have meant losing friends, would have meant losing status in society. It wasn't a lifestyle choice. It, it wasn't something that opened the way. It, it wasn't that secret handshake that helped them get to the top of the, their CV, to the top of the pile. It, it wasn't that. It was the opposite of that. It meant being shunned in a lot of cases. And ultimately, they were called to follow a man who was nailed to a tree. Not much of a lifestyle choice. Doesn't look great on Instagram. Following Jesus could never be thought of these people as a lifestyle choice. But it's so dangerous for us in the 21st century West to just be cozily cuddled in to this Christianity which doesn't challenge us. It allows us to just carry on living just like anybody else, but where are your values really coming from? What is your life really heading towards? What is it oriented around? What are your decisions leading you to? It's coming to church on Sunday or for Father's Day. It's another part of your lifestyle. Or are you being challenged to walk in a different style of life? even if that means being out of step with people around you. But the amazing thing about this is that this is one of the most demanding ethical commands in the whole Bible, what Paul says here. But not so much just for us as we've been challenged to receive it, but for the one who gives it. Not just for the readers, but for the writer. Think about it, Paul says this, you guys are probably wondering what this all looks like. You, you need skin on it. You, you need to know, well, okay, this is, this is great and these are good ideas and, uh, and we'll try and um, apply them, but how do we put them into practice? Well, Paul says this, whatever you've learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, that's what it looks like. So basically, just copy me. I mean, think about this. This is what Paul says. You're wondering what it's like to follow Jesus. I'll make it simple. I lived among you. That's what it looks like. Just copy me. Now, who here, don't put your hand up because you've got trouble with humility, wants to say, me too. I want to say the same thing Paul's got. Anyone wondering what it's like to follow Jesus, just copy me. Do exactly what I do. Copy my attitudes, the way I deal with people, my habits of mind, the way I spend my money, the way I, I deal with my, my family and my friends. Notice what they say about me. Copy all of that, and, and that's what it means to follow Jesus. That's pretty challenging, isn't it? But do you know what? 
Isn't that something actually worth living for? You know, something actually challenging, something exciting, something, something to go for, to actually aspire to live a style of life that is worth emulating. It's worth copying. Like if someone just copied what your life was, it would be worthwhile for them to emulate you, to imitate you. And Paul is not saying here, you know, imitate the good things that I do and not the bad. Why? Well, first of all, that doesn't work. Have you ever said that to your child? I want you to copy all the things that I do that are good and not all the things that are bad. Well, you can say whatever you want. That's not what's going to happen. Because you know that kids copy everything. In fact, it feels like they especially copy the stuff you do that's bad. But maybe it's just what you know it is. But they copy everything. So it's not going to work. And the second problem with that is when we say copy the good things that I do, not the bad things, who determines which are the good parts and which are the bad parts? We do, the copier. So what do we end up doing? Whatever we want. So that doesn't work. So I'm not saying that we should follow people blindly. Absolutely not. That's not. The tradition of Christianity, it's really sad when, when you see that. We absolutely shouldn't do that. But alongside our reason and our experience, we have to be humble enough to allow ourselves to be taught by Scripture and by tradition and by the examples that we see in others. So we have to allow ourselves to be shaped in those things. Else we end up just doing whatever we want and saying, well, I copy what I like and I don't copy what I don't like. And we need to do some harder, more difficult reflection on the way that we live. And Paul finishes this verse. Um, I'm just going to jump back ahead to verse 9. And he says at the end of this, that whatever you've learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, Put it into practice and the God of peace will be with you. You see, we have this promise. As we do these things, the God of peace will be with you. Now, why does Paul say very clearly here, the God of peace will be with you? Why does he not just say, God will be with you? You know, we see this kind of language elsewhere in, in Paul. He, he says in Romans chapter 8, if God is for us, who can be against us? We heard earlier from Matthew 28 that Jesus said, I will be with you always. But I want to challenge that. I want to challenge our reading of that, more properly what I want to say. Because we've got to be careful if we have this, this, this little phrase out of context, God is with me, God is for me. God is on my side. We need more than that. Let me ask you a question. Am I on my children's side? Well, a good father absolutely should be 100% on their children's side. But what about when my one-year-old's biting his mother? Am I on his side? Yes, but I'm not taking his side. I'm on his side, but on his side means that I need to 
help him understand that what he's doing is not good. What about when my three-year-old pushes over my one-year-old? Am I on his side? I'm for him, but the way that I'm going to be for him is to teach him that that's not acceptable, to bully, to pick on people who are smaller than you. It's not right. It's not acceptable. That's not how we live. That's not how we do things. So I'm on his side, but that doesn't mean that I always take his side. Do you see the difference? I lived in Sheffield for six years, and it's a beautiful place. And we lived uh, in a number of uh, lovely areas, and I really enjoyed my time there. But for a few months, I lived in an area which, let's say, was challenging. And uh, whilst I was in this challenging area, one day, we hadn't been there very long, uh, a young lad came across the street with a bar in his hand, and he went up to our security floodlight in broad daylight and went smash, 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 and just walked back over the street. I never spoke to this kid. None of my housemates had ever spoke to this kid or had any dealings with him. We're thinking, what is this secret vendetta, you know, that has, that has, you know, gone on? Bizarre situation. So we go across the road, knock, knock, knock. His mum comes to the door and we say, really sorry, blah, blah, blah. You know, and we tell her what's happened. To which she's replied, no, he hasn't. So we went through the whole thing of explaining how we saw it in broad daylight, but all we got was, no, he hasn't, what, what are you saying? As we tried to continue the conversation, she became more angry, more aggressive, and we kind of realized we're on hiding to nothing, so we left it. Now, when I was a kid, and we accidentally put a cricket ball through the neighbor's greenhouse, okay, or chasing after the football and ran all over the neighbor's flowers, my dad made me go and apologize. Now, let me ask you a question. Which is more godlike? Which more represents the best, the highest? Is it the mother in Sheffield or is it my dad? Well, I hope that the answer is obvious. You see, my dad was doing the right thing, he was being a good father. He was teaching me something about what it means to live together. But he was on my side, but he didn't take my side. Do you see the difference? And if we just say, God is for me, God is on my side, God is with me, we've got to be clear about what God we're talking about. Because you see, Paul says here, the God of peace will be with you. You see, people who just say, God is with me, God is for me, God is on my side, strap bombs to their chest and send other people to do the same. And we need to be different from that. Is anybody with me? So we need to, we need to understand that God is for you, but God is for the you that God is calling you to be. God is not for your bad attitude. God is not for your breaking of relationships. God is not for the discord you're sowing. God is not for the violence that you claim is in God's name. God is not for those things. But God is for everyone. God is for the you he is calling us into. So 
Don't see God as your divine power on your shoulder. Don't see God as your divine backer, always there to prop up your efforts. But instead, before God. Before what God is for. In other words, before what's the best for everyone. Be, be, before, before what's most true, what's most noble, pure, lovely, admirable, excellent, praiseworthy. So the Philippians here, in a frontier city, a city where retired military men were sent as a continuing presence. It's a kind of place today like in Britain where, where we, have, um, we have barracks and there are military parades and the military are given a different sort of elevation and status than they maybe are in a town like Burnley. It was that kind of place. But even to those kind of people, Paul says, the God of peace will be with you. So we don't need a God who's just there to vanquish our enemies. But actually, we need to know that the God of peace is with us in every situation. So how do you have peace? You get to know this God of peace. That's how they're connected. And, you know, we've heard more the last two weeks and we will next week about how you can have peace. And I encourage you to engage with all those messages for some practical help with that. But the truth is that we have a God here who is not here to back us no matter what, to send away the people that we perceive as being against us. But actually, we have this promise that this God of peace is with us, that we can pray about anything, that we can present our requests to him, that we can trust in God, we can trust for the future. And that allows us to have a peace, even in the midst of a situation like the Philippians, where they may have been sidelined, they may have been persecuted, they may have been wondering what was going on. And even for Paul in prison, and even for Jesus on the cross, but even in all that, there is a peace that comes from knowing the God of peace will be with you. So let me encourage you to go away from this message and continue to be deliberate about what you think on. Discover more about us at lifelanks.org and stay inspired by subscribing to the podcast via iTunes. Thanks for listening.